The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today's episode is the second entry in a two-part collection of stories we're calling A Tale of Two Aviators, detailing the experience of two aviators in the United States Air Force who were shot down during their service in the Vietnam War. While their stories may start in a similar manner, what happened to each after their respective crashes was very different. This episode features excerpts from the oral history of Bill Wilson, a Museum of Flight docent who served as a pilot and weapon systems officer on the General Dynamics F-111 Aardvark fighter plane in Vietnam. And yes, Aardvark was the official name for that class of fighter plane. The section of his multi-hour recording that we're honing in on for this episode was a mission around Christmas of 1972, when he was acting as a weapons systems officer and his plane was shot down mere miles from Hanoi, the capital of the communist government in Vietnam. He and his pilot separated in an attempt to survive in the Vietnamese jungle. This oral history was conducted by volunteer Ted Leiberger, and you'll hear Ted's voice from time to time as well, especially at the very end. One last note before turning it over to Bill and Ted. A few times, Bill refers to the Jolly Green in his story. This is a slang term for the Sikorsky MH-53 helicopter, which is known affectionately as the Super Jolly Green Giant. It got that nickname because the helicopter was designed to replace the Sikorsky AH-3E, which itself was known as the Jolly Green Giant. And that got its name, the Jolly Green Giant, because it was big and green. (laughs) And somewhere, someone decided to liken it to the green bean mascot from the grocery stores. With those items out of the way, let's roll the recording. This is the Christmas bombing. So we sat down for two nights. Then I went up to the operations officer. I wanted to get flying again instead of sitting around. So I went up to him and said, why don't you uh, send us up in the bullseye next time? Bullseye is a 10-mile radius around Hanoi. So what I figured was we'd hit a target right on the edge of Bullseye there. He assigned us the target on the Hanoi side of the Red River, right there at the river docks, right there, which was a mile and a half from dead center. My aircraft commander was not pleased with me. (laughs) We went on in, hit the target, and then we were going to break off and go get over to the north side of the Red River there and then swing back around. Basically, it sounds weird, but we were going to come west. Did just a jerk, jink across the thing, and we got a utility hydraulic light. Uh, 
That's one of the two hydraulic systems on board that had failed. Okay, well, I'd had that happen once before, too. Just causes some problems in landing a little bit, but nothing serious. Started bending on around, and all of a sudden, uh, we get a right engine fire. Now that's serious at 300 feet. I, for my sanity, I say that it's enemy action, because we were right over Hanoi, where there were a lot of people firing up at us. I got a poem at home that the North Vietnamese poet laureate had written about this woman or girl who was manning, manning a, well, effectively a 50 caliber machine gun. And uh, through the tears of her eyes, because she'd lost her mother a, a few days before to a CBU, of course, saw the face of the enemy and shot it down. So we ejected and the capsule went up pretty smooth, big bang, and a rocket was pushing us upward. I could feel that, and it went into the clouds. And apparently the parachute came out in the cloud and came down. And there was a big flash on the ground where the airplane went in, and it still had 16,000 pounds of fuel on board. Then we, we came down. Another 50 cal was off in the distance firing at us. I didn't think that was fair at all. Went as far as I could that night, found a spot that I thought was okay to hide for a while, planning on getting up again and moving. It was just about 4 a.m. when these guys came up the mountain in the dark. So I just stayed frozen there, laying on my side like this and managed to have this and I just froze for a long, long time, because they were around in the area and managed to pinch a nerve in my elbow, you know, the crazy bone nerve. And so this half of the hand went numb for six months. Finally, they left and I tried to move a little bit during the day, but it was really dark and these guys were going up and down these hills. I had a survival knife, that was about it. So at night I would try and move uh, around, but sometimes I, I couldn't. And finally I found this one spot that had really tall grass. And it was just perfect, because that's how they taught us to uh, hide it at uh, jungle survival. So I crawled in there and uh, hid and waited. Christmas came. This was, on, I was shot down on the night of the 22nd of December. So, 23rd, 24th, 25th, nothing happened. I didn't expect anything on Christmas. I mean, who wants to get shot down on Christmas, right? Then on the 26th, some A7s came in, which were the surge and rescue airplanes at that time. I got in contact with them and they came in and they located me and then they said, well, we got to go up and refuel and then we'll be back. And I knew what coming back meant, that they were going to have a helicopter with them. I was feeling pretty happy at that point. And about the time that they were to do back, the clouds went whomp, right down to the ground. So, of course, they couldn't come in and get me and all this kind of stuff. Some little bummer. Okay.
So the next day, on the 27th, one of the first things that I, I heard that morning was this boom, boom. I pulled out the radio thinking it was maybe another airplane or something like that. Well, it was. It was an F-4 getting shot down. I heard the backseater and the front seater floating down, talking to each other. I just couldn't resist. I just said, welcome to the crowd. And those guys go, what? They floated down. They got caught. But they were far enough away from me that it wasn't that big a deal. Then, then the A7s came back in again, and I checked in with them. They, they were running low on questions to ask me because I had already used up my search and rescue card, which is the number, a question that I had dreamed up, you know, like, what's the color of your dog or some, some dumb thing. Then they brought in the, um, the Jolly Green aircraft commander, which was, who was Richard Sapero. Uh, he was a captain at the time. He and, he and his crew came in and they flew over a 50 cal machine gun, which laced the aircraft, put a hole in one of the uh, left side fuel tank there so they didn't have any pressurization from that side, and also hit the co-pilot in the elbow right here. And that caused a, a big mess in the cockpit too. But they still came in. I don't know how these helicopter Jolly Green guys walk. I mean, it's just incredible. But they came on in and went down into the hover, and I tried to vector them in, not doing the best job in the world, I can tell you went into the hover close to me, and I was vectoring him in, and then finally I said, okay, I'm breaking cover, and I went for the helicopter. The flight engineer, I was standing there at the door. I'm looking up at him, he's down, you know, because they're pretty close to the ground. The minigun guy in the back was firing out, but he's standing there just cool, calm, and collected. I'll never forget it. He's looking down at me, I'm looking up at him, and he's dropping the penetrator down and I got impatient and I reached up for the penetrator. You're not you're supposed to let the penetrator hit the ground because of the static electricity around the you know a helicopter makes a bunch of static electricity. I didn't. I was reaching up for it and I either lost my balance, got blown down by the down washes because that's a big helicopter or got hit by static electricity. Anyway, something hit me on both shoulders, just boom, like that. And I was on the side of the hill and I just went ass over tea kettle down the hill. So by the time I got myself together with my bent radio and all that kind of stuff, they were leaving. They were taking a lot of fire because there were bad guys. I couldn't hear any of the bad guys shooting at them because of the noise of the helicopter. They left, and I said, come on back, I'll, I'll get on the penetrator, I promise. Said, nope, sorry, he's hurt, we have to go home. Well, bring in number two, no, he's gotta be with it. Okay, yeah, crap. I'm dead meat now, for sure. So, but I crawled back to my hiding spot and stayed there, and I could hear guys real close to me. 10 feet or so. 
they didn't go any further they, and they left. Well, once it got dark, then I've, I've got to move again. So I moved. There are trails all around this place. So I moved the direction I thought was fairly good and found some big bamboo. They told us in Jungle Survival that bamboo had water in there. So I carefully stepped over trail, went in there and drilled a hole and stuck a little tube that I had down and all I got was cool air out of the thing. You know, crap, it's starting to get a light. So I went back across the trail again and found this great big rock with a lot of grass over the top of it and crawled back in there and was hiding there. After daylight sometime, the, the North Vietnamese came up the trail again and I swear that one of them said, <gasps> Look, American! You know, pointing, apparently pointing to their, to my footprint, which was entirely different than the tire tracks that they had for sandals. Uh, I thought, oh man, now I'm in big trouble. But I still had my gloves on and all that, and I was down in that rock, just as, you know, becoming one with the rock. And I didn't move again. Put a, put my hand over my face like that to break up my profile, my face. The guy was coming closer and closer and closer. Parted the grass over the top of my head. I could feel it move over my head, and he didn't see me. And went on. I'm surprised he couldn't hear my heart. But anyway, he then went onward, and they left. So, of course, I then moved again. At that time, they gave me a, a radio message go from Nellis to your home. Well, to me, home was Iowa. What they meant was to my house in Las Vegas. So I went east. They wanted me to go southwest. So I went east. There I found one palm tree that was about yay big. And it turns out that you can cut a palm tree, hollow it out a little bit, and get some water in there. Because I was out of water. Hadn't eaten by the way, after three days, like they promised, hunger pains quit. The hunger pains weren't a problem. They have been ever since, <laughs> but not uh, then. But then, of course, the thirst was going more and more and more. And so I opened this little thing, got at least a little bit of liquid out of that. And I was thinking, boy, that's very dumb because now they can find a dead palm tree. But that next day, which was day seven, on the 29th of December, that the A7s came back in and they ident identified me and then said they had a package for me to drop. And they did. They said it was up against this rock. Well, you know, what, what rock is that? I kept my head down because they'd been did a little strafing over the top if you ever had somebody go over 50 feet above you with a firing gatling gun that's pretty loud i told him to be careful because I, I didn't need any company down here but anyway he said you went the wrong way you'll have to go back the other way we have this package for you did you have any idea what your pilot was doing while all this was happening to you uh he was had already been caught 
he got caught after on the second day. He was up farther. He almost got himself shot. He was in some woe scrub, and for some reason, a, a, gar, a guy was apparently hurt him or something and started coming down the hill and had his gun like that. Boy, he almost stepped on Bob and reflex pulled back and fired. So he was already in Hanoi by the time I got there. You are picked up or found by the Vietnamese in the grass. Right. Can you relate what happened from there on? <laughs> well, they were pointing to me and I just laid there in the grass and looked at them. And they, they were looking at me, you know, they were expecting me to go like that and I didn't. So finally, it must have been the junior guy on this group uh, was directed to go get me. And so he went up and tapped me. Okay, jigs up. So I got up and raised my hands. And the first thing they grabbed was not my pistol, was not my uh, survival knife but my Seiko watch. Yeah, okay, I know where you guys are. And then they, they basically stripped me down to my DVDs. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. After Bill was captured, he was held at the infamous Hanoi Hilton. And if you want to hear that story in a future podcast episode, send me an email at podcast at museumofflight.org. Let me know. While Bill's oral history is not yet available online, a number of our other oral histories are. And you can find a link to those oral histories along with thousands of other digitized objects from the Museum of Flight collection in the show notes at museumofflight.org slash podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this two-episode collection of stories. If you'd like to hear more of these kinds of thematically linked episodes, these kind of duologies or trilogies where it's not the exact same story, exact same topic, but linked in some way like this, let me know at podcast at museumofflight.org. I want to take an extra moment to thank those of you who've been able to contribute financially to the podcast or the museum at large. As we remain closed, your gifts have been our lifeline. And as the release of this episode, we're still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. There's big news on that front as we plan our reopening. Please visit museumofflight.org for the most up-to-date on our reopening procedures and how to come back and visit us again. A sad note to share, Jim Merrick, the World War II veteran and Museum of Flight volunteer who appeared in two episodes of The Flight Deck a couple months back, has passed away just a few days before the recording of this episode. It is an honor to keep his stories alive now through the podcast recording that we have and, and an oral history that we have of him too and, and several other recordings. And I'll post a link to the two episodes of the show in the show notes if you want to give them a listen and hear his story again in his own words. If you like what you heard, please share the podcast and subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes. 
please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumoflight.org. The oral history program from which this episode took excerpts is made possible by the generous support of Michael and Mary Kay Holman. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. <laughs>